Um, so today, we're in Luke 18, chapters 18 and 19. And um, the, in these chapters, we're looking at Jesus' final leg of his journey into Jerusalem. Um, these last few chapters that we've been going through um, the past couple Sundays, they've been describing this journey that Jesus has been making with his disciples and his followers um, into Jerusalem. And he knows what the end of that looks like. He knows that he's going there to die. And you get this sense that he knows his time here on earth with his, with his disciples is short. It's running short. And so he's filling up these last few chapters with story after story and encounter after encounter where he's describing to his people what the kingdom of heaven really is like, what his character really is. He's showing them what the Messiah really looks like. That, you know, the Jews were thinking of this crusader king who would have all this political power. And here's this carpenter slash rabbi who doesn't have political power. And so he's, he's showing them that um, their, what their conventional wisdom would say is supposed to happen is not actually what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And that's what Caleb talked about a lot last week. What really stuck with me about, um, if you remember what Caleb was talking about, there's there all those parables that he's telling them. And again, he just keeps showing them what the kingdom of heaven is. The thing that really stuck with me that I really liked that Caleb said is that idea of humility. That those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Again, it's not... What, what one would say is the conventional wisdom. So let's dive in. We're in uh, chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. If you have your Bibles, follow along with me. If you're here today and you don't have a Bible, we have free Bibles in the back, and we'd love for you to take one. So here we go. Chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them, and when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So we get this beautiful picture. Um, I love the, the account in Luke because he, the Greek word he uses is, is actually the word for infants. So there are these parents bringing their infants to the Lord, to Jesus, to bless them and to pray for them. <clears throat> and the disciples don't, don't quite like that. Um, and he tells them, no, wait, hold on. And he even says, you need to receive the kingdom of heaven like these children. And what I believe that means is he's calling to the fact that when we receive Christ, when we, come to, when we encounter Jesus, we are all need. There is no bargaining. There's no exchange of goods. We're all need. Um, when I was doing the studying for this particular part about Jesus coming to the children, this story, it was late at night at my house, and um, I had, it was in my office, and all the lights were out. It was like 10 or 11. Um, all I had was my little desk lamp and the, the glow of the, of the uh, monitors. And so I'm working on this, and my son walks in, my seven-year-old son, Aiden. Um, he pads in to the, to the room, and he kind of, I think he was sleepwalking. He was sick at the time. And I think he was sleepwalking. 
So he just kind of, he, he kind of walks into the room and kind of just walks right up to me and just kind of stands there. And, I, and I'm like, hey, hey bud, do you, are you okay? Do you need anything? And he just kind of rubbed his eyes and, and then he just put his arms around me. And he just collapsed in my arms. He just, he just crumbled. And I was like, what a perfect picture of what it looks like to come to him as a child. Aiden just needed his dad. So our need for Christ is complete. We can't add anything to salvation. Ours is simply to accept his love. So the disciples didn't get that. In their mind, again, remember, in this time period, children are not highly regarded. I mean, they're loved by their parents, but in ancient times, children were just, they weren't really regarded in society at all. So the disciples are thinking, you know, our master doesn't have time for this, to take all this time and bless these babies. Like, he has more important things to do. And Jesus says, no, you don't get it. Jesus had already addressed this big difference in the way God thinks versus the way we think, especially in regards to children. In Luke 19, or 9, we, we actually read about it a while back. This is Luke 9, 46 through 48. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Again, as he's on this last leg of the journey into Jerusalem, he's showing them over and over the kingdom of heaven, God himself, the Messiah. It's not what you thought. Let's move on. In Luke 18, 18 through 30, we meet the rich young ruler. And a ruler asked him, I'm looking this way because I need glasses and I can't even read that. So I'm looking this way. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So we meet the rich young ruler. 
we have uh, the account of this meeting with Jesus in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and here in Luke. And from those, we have pieced together that he was a rich, he was rich, he was young, he was a ruler. Most likely, he was probably a Jewish leader of some sort, maybe in charge of a synagogue, or he might have been a member of the Sanhedrin. We know he wasn't a Sadducee because Sadducees didn't believe in eternal life. And this man clearly did. And I think that the tendency when we hear this story is to think rich and we equate that with most of the other stories we hear of rich people in the, Old, or in the New Testament, which is the tax collectors. And so we equate the rich young man as probably evil. Rich equals evil. But that's not the picture we get here. The picture we get here is of a man who is really, he's rich and he's a really good man. He did his best. To, to, he tried with all of his heart and his might to follow the commandments, to treat people well. I found this statement from a pastor named Claude Alexander I really liked, and it says, he was a wealthy man and a young man. His eyes were set on religious matters, on teachers, eternal life, good deeds. He had the look of a seeker. He seemed willing to listen and eager to learn. He seemed a disciple in the making. And on the surface, I think this is the guy that everyone would want in their ministry, on their ministry team. This is the guy who has it all. He's, he's got the wealth. He's got influence. He has some level of authority. And he's also treating people well. He's trying really hard to, to do right. He's trying to follow all the commandments. On the surface, this is the guy that you want. And I love actually in the account that in, in Mark's uh, gospel, it says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then he tells the young man something that devastates him. Jesus doesn't say this to him to give away all you have and follow me. He doesn't say that in order to shoo him away. He says that because he can see into the man's heart. He knows the real issue here. And he realizes that the cure has to be drastic and it was going to be painful. Um, Tim Keller says this really, really well, I think. He says that Jesus smashed two of the rich ruler's assumptions. Christianity is something you can add and Christianity is something you can do. The rich young ruler thought it was something you could add. He thought faith was merely following the law. He didn't follow the law, by the way, because he wasn't perfect, but he tried. Um, He thought it was uh, faith in Christ was something that he just needed to add to his life, that he had been on this journey down this path of righteousness where he had been really following the law as much as he could, but he knew that there was just something. There was... There was something he was missing. It was, it wasn't, he wasn't complete. There was just something there. But in his mind, what he needed was something to add on top of his accomplishments. Or you might say uh, an extra rung that would get him to the top of the mountain. And Jesus is telling him he's not even on the right path.
Christianity is not something you add. It's an explosion. It's an explosion that destroys everything and makes way for something brand new. It disrupts everything. It turns our worldly wisdom on its head and it says those who lose their life will save it. And of course, we know what that means when we hear those who lose their life will save it. We know that that means that God wants all of us, not just something, not just a little thing to add to our program. He wants us to give our lives to him and he will give us brand new life. And the beauty here is that the brand new life we have is righteousness. It is brand new. We are literally fused with Christ and Christ in you. Christ in me is far more than anything we could possibly piece together on our own. Works without Christ, in comparison, are like filthy rags. And so I was thinking about this idea of the rich young ruler, thinking that this is just something he could add to the program of his life. And it made me think uh, that I'm actually, I hear that a lot in modern society today. We hear it in different forms, but we hear this idea. One of the ways that we could hear it is, I've actually heard a lot of, not a lot, a lot is maybe strong, but I've heard people, even people that I've admired, say, well, I was a a Christian, but not so much anymore. Um, I don't know if I would call it Christianity. Uh, There was just things in the Bible that that I don't agree with. They're really just hard, and I didn't, I didn't like some of the ways that the Bible characterizes Christ. And so I still believe in Christ, but, uh, and he's probably still the Son of God, but I, I, it's not the biblical, I don't, I don't really follow that. It's not the biblical Christ. Uh, it's more about, um, it's helping me on my spiritual and mystical journey. Or you might have heard it this way, which I've also heard plenty of people say that, well, I I really believe in Western society or America. And Westernism was founded on Christian principles. And so the Christian stories and, and Christ, the Bible, those are all good moral stories. Those are all those are all wholesome things and, and it's what we base our foundation, our society on. So so I, I follow uh, Christianity more as a cultural Christian. Because I believe in Western society. But I wouldn't say this Christ is the Son of God. I mean, let's not get crazy. So this idea, same idea that the rich young ruler had, it manifests in different ways, but it manifests today, absolutely. And we hear it all the time. And I guess what I'm just saying is, is that if you hear that, beware. That's not what Christ is offering. Christ is not offering something to add on to your life. Christ is offering a transformation. He doesn't want you to just be more moral. He wants you to be transfigured and new. He wants, he says to you, offer me your life, offer me your old life, and I will give you mine. I will give you new life. That's what Christ is offering. So the rich young ruler didn't get that. And he walked away sad. And actually, sad is kind of a 
weak word, I think, there. There are older translations that say grieved. And I really like that. I think that's a better understanding of the gravity of the sadness that the rich young ruler walked away with. He wanted to add to his pile of accomplishments. He wanted one more thing he could do that would be that magic combination of reaching righteousness on this path that he had constructed for himself. But Jesus shattered that whole perception in telling him to get rid of the thing that actually meant more to him than God, which was in this case his money. The point here is that if you don't understand your real need for Christ, the temptation could be to approach him and to approach Christianity as just something you add or just a set of rules to follow. Remember when Caleb talked last week about, uh, in, in all the parables, the theme that kept coming back that I've already mentioned is humility. And that's what this is about. The young man didn't have humility to see his real need. His, his vision was just right here. He could only see this. He, he failed to see the bigger picture. That in reality, his wealth and all of his accomplishments didn't really mean anything. He needed Jesus, and he couldn't see that. And I think we as Christians can sometimes do, sometimes do that too. I know I certainly can. I struggle with this as well. Um, putting something above our relationship with Jesus, elevating something to the point that it means more to us than our faith in Christ. Maybe it really is money for you. Or maybe it's the neighborhood you live in. Maybe it's your work. Or your identity as parents. Or maybe it's your status here at this church. And the list can go on and on. And those in and of itself, those things are not bad, right? Money in and of itself is not bad. It's a matter of what we're putting as the most important thing in our lives. And what if Jesus said, I need you to give this up. It's hindering your closeness to me. I can think of some things that would be pretty hard for me. When I thought of this, this is maybe going to sound silly, but when I thought of this, the first thing that popped up in in my head was my upright bass. Many of you have seen me play upright bass. That's that big thing that I play sometimes. It looks like a giant violin. And what you may not know about that is that... um, I've had that thing since I was 13 years old. It is, wow, because I'm really old. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, But I have had it. I've had it for a really long time. I'm not going to say how long I've had it because then you could piece that together. But um, I've carried that thing around me. And, you know, as basses go, if if anybody here knows anything about double basses, it's it's a 57K. It's it's okay. It's kind of mid-level. But to me, it means a great deal because it's the thing that I've had with me all my life. I've carried that around halfway across the country and all the places I've lived. I've played it. I've, I've, I remember I used to play jazz on it sometimes back when I could play. And I would uh, play for hours at a time. And I, would, I remember bleeding. My blood got it. That thing has my blood in it. It's like a blood relative to me. But I think I thought, what if God said... I need you to give this to someone who needs it. 
or even more importantly, or more, what would be more hard for me is music in general. I've been a, I've been a musician nearly all my life. And to be honest with you guys, I have found my identity in that many times in my life. I found my identity in the band I was in, how good of a bass player or whatever I could be, that I was going to be a rock star. No, no. But, um, or even here, playing. I've played worship most of my life. And I think, what if God said, I need you to stop? I need you to stop playing music. Um, or when I was younger, one of the most important things, and, and for a while, the most important thing in my life when I was younger was to find a woman that I could fall in love with and to get married. <laughs> and now I am married, and you know, whatever. But <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> my wife's not here, but it was funny when my wife was here because then I could say I love her. I do love her. Um, but... The point is, is that I I started thinking, what are the things that I have in my lifetime, or maybe even now, that I am elevating above my relationship with Christ? So the man walked away sad. And when the disciples saw this, they saw this guy who had it all together. He had the wealth. he 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 had it all. Good man. He walked away. And they said, that who in the world can be saved? And I love the paraphrase uh, of the message on this because I think it's, it's put absolutely beautifully. In verses 26 and 27, it says this. Then who has any chance at all? The others asked. No chance at all, Jesus said. If you think you can pull it off yourself. But every chance in the world if you would just trust God to do it. All right, let's move on. This is chapter 18, verses 35 through 43. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people when they saw it gave praise to God. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it's just a beautiful story. From the Gospel of Mark, we know that the blind man's name was Bartimaeus. And when I read this story, I think back on what it means to come to him like a child. That This is what that looks like. To cry out when in need. To shout when it's not polite or appropriate. To cry out in unabashed, unashamed, pure need. 
And this is what we should do when we encounter Jesus. Now, let me be clear. I want to I be clear on this. Once we have Christ, we've asked him into our hearts. We've accepted him as our Lord and Savior. We have Christ. It's done. It's finished. We have Christ forever. We are fused with him. We have his righteousness and we are children of God. I don't want to say but, so I'll say and. And it's sometimes really, really good to be reminded of our great need that we have for Jesus. Not to wallow in shame or to say, oh, I'm terrible, I'm nothing, eh. It's not that. It's to be grateful. It's to be grateful that Jesus has supplied our need. That He is sufficient. As my dear friend Mark Stewart says, to cry out in need of a Savior. So let's go into chapter 19 where we meet Zacchaeus. This is chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. So he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So here we meet Zacchaeus. And it's interesting, I think, that the Gospel of Luke is the only place where we get the story of Zacchaeus. It's not recorded in the other three Gospels. Um, I always thought that Zacchaeus got short shrift. See what I did there? The jokes are just going to get worse, folks. So, um, What I mean by that is I, th- I think we kind of think of him as cutesy. Um, when I think of Zacchaeus, I don't know about you guys, but when I think of Zacchaeus, the thought that comes into my head is the song that I learned in BBS, right? Zacchaeus was a... And a wee little man was he? Right. Wee little man? He's just a short guy. I don't... Wee little man, it's so cutesy and weird. Like, is he a leprechaun? I don't... I, like, I imagine like, you, you, here he is. Hey, there he is. Wee little man. There you go, Zacchaeus. Go on, buddy. All right. Have a good time. He's just a short guy. And he's actually, he's a tax collector. He's actually a chief tax collector. And there's a lot of connotation that we miss when we say, yeah, he's a wee little man. Um, 
First of all, to really understand who Zacchaeus was, I think it's good to understand a little bit about Jericho. So remember, this is the last leg of the journey um, of Jesus going into Jerusalem, and he makes this stop in Jericho, and that's where he meets Bartimaeus, and that's where he meets Zacchaeus. Um, Mara Sala, assistant researcher at the Sapienza University of Rome, say that five times fast, she says this about Jericho. From as early as the Hellenistic Roman period, Jericho was a winter resort for rulers and rich people in Palestine. Roman generals, including Pompey, passed through Jericho, and Herod the Great built his winter palaces there. The oasis attracted bustling activity, and historians from the Hellenistic Roman era, Strabo, Pliny, and Josephus, stressed Jericho's economic, administrative, and military importance. In the time of Jesus, Herodian Jericho was flourishing with the construction of numerous vias, the cultivation of date palms, and the production of wine, spices, and perfumes. So understand, this is no backwater town. When I think of Jericho, of course, I think of the story of Joshua, right? Where they marched around and sang and the walls came down. And so in my mind, the picture of Jericho, it just, for me, is like desert and walls. That's what I think of. But Jericho was a thriving city. Um, almost like a combination. Well, it was called, yeah, it was called the, the City of Palms. And in the writings from ancient times, a lot of places they talk about Jericho and they say, you could wear linens all year round, which doesn't mean a lot to us. But what that's saying is, is that it's in the 70s and it's subtropical. It's nice and temperate all year round. So imagine like a combination of Maui and New York, right? This is a place that's a, that's a resort for rich people to go vacation. It's where rich people have their winter homes. Herod the Great had his home there, Pompeii. And it's also a place of bustling activity, thriving commerce, where resources are produced that are some of the most expensive resources of the time. That's Jericho. And Zacchaeus is a tax collector there, a chief tax collector there, or a publican. Um, we know a little bit about tax collectors, but, but uh, there's, there's more to them than just collecting taxes. Publicans, as they were known, did a lot of other things. They managed Roman legions and military they managed the collection of port duties. They oversaw public building projects. And again, they collected taxes. And how that would work back in those days, it's the way that they collected taxes, it's very different than we do. They didn't have W-9s that they signed and that kind of thing. This was, what, it, what happened was the Roman Republic would have contracts out. So they would subcontract tax collecting out. And... The contract would be for a specific region. So in this case, let's say Jericho. And they would say, okay, based on the census, we expect a certain amount of money out of the people in Jericho for, let's say, three years. And that's what the contract would be. So to give an example, I'm not going to use denarii or whatever the money they used back then because I don't, I don't understand that. So we'll just put it in terms of dollars, right? So the contract might have been, okay, for Jericho for three years, we expect a million dollars out of that. And so the publicans then would have to bid on that contract. And of course, as a publican, you want to bid in at the lowest, but you need to get the contract. So let's say 
the publican, or in this case Zacchaeus, would have gotten that contract for $1.5 million. What happened was, is that then the publican, or the tax collector, out of their own pocket, would immediately pay that money to Rome. They would give Rome $1.5 million. And then they had the duration of the contract to collect that back. So in this case, it would be three years to get $1.5 million back. And if you're good at business, you know that you have to make a profit. So they would collect more. And often, because tax collectors and publicans were rich, they collected far more from the people. So they were known as being incredibly ruthless. They had bodyguards. They employed legionnaires and militiamen, ruffians, thugs, to hurt people, to squeeze as much money out of people as they could in their region. And what was worse for a Jewish tax collector or a Jewish publican is that you have to remember, these are the Romans. These are the occupiers, the enemies. And the publicans are in bed with the enemy. And not only that, but they're hurting their own countrymen to gain a profit. They were considered as traitors or quislings, which is just a fancy word for really bad. So it's interesting, I think, to note the differences and the similarities between the rich young man and Zacchaeus. First of all, they're both rich. But the rich young man was well-regarded, highly sought after. His opinion counted. And Zacchaeus was despised. Zacchaeus was a man who had used his power to work with Rome, the enemy, the occupiers, and to hurt his own countrymen. And when Zacchaeus saw Jesus, he was confronted by the fact that his wealth and his power didn't really mean anything. That they were empty in and of themselves. <laughs> and he, he saw his need and he did something about it. So here's this man, this powerful man, short but powerful. And he, he climbs up a tree in front of people. I mean, that's not dignified. I mean, if you climb up a tree in front of people, that's fine, but I'm just saying it's not dignified. I'm definitely not saying don't climb trees. That's not my, my purpose. Um, he saw this man, Jesus, and he knew that he was Lord. And we know that because Jesus calls him a son of Abraham. Now, I think that means that he's saying Zacchaeus has the faith of Abraham. Because they were all sons of Abraham. They're all technically descendants of Abraham. I think what he's saying is Zacchaeus has the faith of Abraham and like blind Bartimaeus, his faith in Christ has made him well. So Zacchaeus submits himself to Jesus and his authority and he puts his money and his life in Jesus' hands. And Jesus blesses him because Zacchaeus saw the great need he had had for Christ and submitted to him. And they grumbled about it. Um, if I'm being honest, I think I would have been among the grumblers if I had been there. I think I would have said like this. I would have said, wait, what? This guy? Um, 
this is uncomfortable for me, but I'm going to tell on myself a little bit. And I'm going to tell you something about me that's embarrassing. Um, when I was younger, when I was in my late teens and early 20s, I had a very narrow view, and I thought that I had the market cornered on truth. And I was really into politics. Um, and if I'm honest, I think I would have, I think then I would have, I think that my politics spoke to my Christianity rather than my Christianity speaking to my politics. I think that was really more important to me. And so in my late teens and early 20s, it was actually, as embarrassing as it is to say this, it was actually really hard for me to imagine Christians being real Christians unless they thought like I did, unless they had very similar views to me. I might have been the one to say, well, I know he says he's a Christian, but you see who he votes for? I mean... And that's just like they thought about Zacchaeus. They're like, this guy? Really? Remember, the disciples here are men mostly of low social and economic standing. These are a bunch of fishermen, um, among others. There's, he is a zealot. Jesus called to him Simon the Zealot. Do you know what a zealot was? A zealot was someone who regarded Rome as the enemy and even regarded people that didn't agree with their theology, the enemy, and they wanted freedom. Freedom is a good thing, but their way of getting it was to use violence. That's what a zealot was. We would call them today, what would we call them? A terrorist. Yeah, a terrorist. Jesus called Simon to himself. And then he also called Matthew the tax collector. If that's not a picture of heaven, I don't know what is. So these are men who have given up everything to follow Jesus, these disciples. They've given up everything to follow him. And then Jesus goes to this guy's house. Really? This chief tax collector? And then he blesses him and he says salvation has come to him. He has the faith of Abraham. This guy, this is like the ancient time Bernie Madoff except that he's much worse because he literally hurt his own people to squeeze as much as he could out of them. Jesus is again painting us this picture of what the kingdom of heaven, of what the kingdom of God really looks like. Whether it's with the little children coming to him or blind Bartimaeus or right here with Zacchaeus. He's showing that it's not about how much money you have or how much money you don't have. It's not about your social status. Jesus calls all to him, and all people from all walks of life come to him and are welcome. The rich person or the poor person the ultra-leftist or the radical right-winger, the Jew or the Gentile, all are welcome. 
We talk nowadays a lot about what Jesus would be like if he was here today. You hear that a lot, right? I've even said that before. Well, you know, um, if Jesus were here today, he'd be the one who would be hanging out with the drunks and the prostitutes at the bars. Which is true. But sometimes we forget that he also blessed and broke bread with the rich and the powerful. Or there are some that are so harsh in pursuit of truth that they've hardened their hearts and they've closed off their ears to to hear anyone else but themselves. And they would say, well, if Jesus was here, he'd be on my side. Jesus thinks just like me. And they forget how gentle he was to the woman caught in adultery. In other words, I just think we have to be very careful. We have to be careful that we're not trying to conform Jesus into our image, but that we're conforming to his. The reality is, is that all of us, all humans, men and women, all races, all nations, everyone from Adam to the babies born today are united by one thing. We are united in our great need for Christ. Not one of us can do this without him. Not one of us can reach across the chasm between us and God without Christ. I love how Louise says, we all stand hand in hand at the foot of the cross. So, These stories for me are challenging for several reasons. Because even with Jesus, even being fused with Christ, having Christ, I can sometimes tend towards acting like the rich young ruler. I want Christianity as sort of a trophy. Or I can look at it as like an extra little thing in my life that can help me, but it's it's an aspect of me. Or I can set things up in my life that are just more important than my relationship with Jesus. Or I can be like those grumbling about Zacchaeus and those who rebuked the parents of the little children and who rebuked Bartimaeus. I can start to believe that my view is the only view. That I have the market cornered on truth. And if I'm being honest, this happens to me When I'm not in this, when I'm not looking here, I can start to act like this. Because the reality is, is that the Bible is where we get truth. Because Jesus, here in Luke, and everywhere throughout the Bible, is telling us what his character is. He's telling us about himself. He's telling us what the kingdom of heaven really looks like. And he is much bigger than the box I try to put him in. The truth is my whole identity is in Christ and I need him desperately. I can't fix my flesh. I can't fix my old nature. I can't control my life and I can't control the perceptions of others about me. And God wants me to do the exact opposite. 
I can't, control, I can't fix my old life and my, old, and my flesh. I can't fix my old nature. God wants me to live in my new nature, to live in the reality of who I really am in Christ, to fix my eyes on Him alone, to simply surrender and be obedient to Him and to what He's calling me to do. Christianity is not something I can do and it's not something I can add. And the challenge for me and for all of us is to remember our need for Christ and surrender all to Him and to live and live in the reality of who we really are, that we are children of the King. And if you're here today and you've never, you don't know this Jesus, maybe you've heard about Him before, maybe you're hearing about Him today for the very first time, but whatever the case, you don't know Him. It's weird or whatever. I... I hope today that you can see who he really is, who God is, that there is a better way. That no matter who you are, no matter what you've done or what you do, there is a way to be whole. That God loves you and has made a way for you to be new and to be free of shame. Whether you're like the blind beggar or you're like Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, or you're like the rich young ruler. It doesn't matter. Jesus is calling to you, and he wants you to give your life to him, and he wants to give his new life to you. What struck me again about what Caleb preached on last week was about how humility was such a key in what Jesus was talking about, about the kingdom of heaven. And that really is what humility is all about. It's understanding and knowing our need for Christ. And it's simply trusting Him. It's trusting Him. Not in shame, but just fixing our eyes on Him in joy. Knowing that He has given us new life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You so much that You have given us this new life. Thank you that you have made a way for us to know you, to be children of God. Thank you that you are always faithful. Thank you that you never forsake us. And no matter what our station, no matter who we are, we are welcome. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.